If you've got a Bible, could you turn to John uh, chapter 14? John chapter 14. Wonderful. And I'm going to read verses 15 through to the end of the chapter. John 14, verse 15. We're dropping back into this mealtime conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He's about to leave. He's telling them that he's leaving. And we're picking it up in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I'm in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us lead. Why don't we pray? Father, please would you help us now this afternoon? These extraordinary, profound, complex words of Jesus, would they be life to us? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says in verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's already said that. He said it in chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Twice at this mealtime, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because he assumes that their hearts will be troubled. So here's my question as we start this afternoon. What is troubling your heart right now? What is causing your heart to be troubled? What is causing you anxious fear? If you like, where do you feel like you're standing on a precipice and as you look out, you are daunted and overwhelmed, out of your depth? 
for some of us in this room, that's a very easy thing to answer, right? We're like, well, it's this. It's big, right? It's consuming for you. And it's, it feels like you're on the edge of the cliff. And as you look out, it just looks so dark. For some of us, we're right there. For others of us, we may think, oh, actually, life's fairly chilled at the moment. Well, I think that there will be things in our lives that trouble us, and there certainly will be things that come that trouble you. And so this sermon is either something you need to hear now or something that you need to hear for one day when your heart is deeply troubled. Because Jesus is going to help us to know what to do with a troubled heart. Later on in the Bible, a man called Paul, he talked about, um, he said this, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Can you relate to that at all? Far beyond our ability. Have you ever found yourself in a situation you think this is beyond me? I'm outgunned, outmanned, (laughs) outnumbered, outplanned. The disciples must be feeling that, right? The disciples must be feeling in that moment, this is way beyond what we can do. We are outgunned and outmanned. This is not something we can handle. Do you remember what Jesus has just said to them last week, right? Look what Jesus just said to them. He's telling them he's leaving. And then he says to them, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, this is verse 12, will do the works I have been doing. Okay, right. You've been one of Jesus' disciples. Here you are, walking around with Jesus for three years, seeing the works that he's been doing. Jesus says, right, I'm going now, and you are going to do the works I've been doing. Do you not think there's a little bit of them that goes, whoa, that is daunting. That feels out of my depth. That feels beyond my ability. But it gets worse. Because Jesus doesn't say, just say, you're going to do the works I've been doing. He says, they will do even greater things than this. So here is Jesus looking at these 11 disciples, saying to them, I'm going, but you're going to carry on the work and you're going to take it further than I ever took it. The disciples' heads must be spinning. Of course their hearts are troubled. Jesus, how on earth are we going to be able to do that? Well, Jesus gives them in this passage exactly what they need for the beyond their ability situation that they're about to face. And he gives us exactly what we need for our troubled hearts today. And what he gives is not a technique to master it or a strategy to manage it or an escape to get out of it. It's not a drug to numb it or music to soothe it or therapy to analyze it. What Jesus gives them is a promise, a stunning promise. And he speaks a promise to them that you find echoed on page after page of the Bible. In fact, you've already heard it. You've already heard it whispered this afternoon. As Israel stood on the edge of the promised land, gazing over the precipice, looking into this land that seems so daunting and overwhelming. How can we, little Israel, go and take this land? God says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I'm with you. 
It's the same promise that was whispered to Joshua. Joshua, just after Moses, the great leader, had died, he was gone. Now it was over to Joshua. Joshua looks at the people. He's daunted and he's overwhelmed and he hears the promise again. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Do you hear it again? To Gideon, standing on the precipice, surrounded by a vast Midianite army, and God comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Over and over again, the same promise is whispered. The Lord is with you. I will be with you. And to Israel, standing on the edge of exile, about to be taken into the darkness of Babylon, about to lose everything, to lose their home, hearts deeply troubled. And God says, do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Over and over again, it's the same promise. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. And that brings us to John 14. And now Jesus and his disciples are standing on the precipice. The future looks so uncertain and terrifying. And Jesus takes the age old promise. And says, I'll be with you. But actually what he does is he takes that age old promises and he pushes it further and deeper than it's ever been previously known. He takes that promise that's been whispered and echoed over and over again. And now he fills it with meaning unlike anything that they've seen before. Because the heart of this passage is Jesus promising that when he goes, something is about to happen that will make that promise make real sense for his disciples. Because the heart of this promise is that the Holy Spirit will come. Jesus says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is coming. And that is what we need to understand together. We need to understand what it means that the Holy Spirit of God comes. And then we don't just need to understand it, we then need to believe it. And then we don't just need to believe it, we then need to live it. God says, I will be with you. And it's not a nice, sentimental platitude. Oh, don't worry, I'll be with you. It's a real, factual, actual thing. Experience, reality, person. Now, often we can find ourselves unsure about the work of the Spirit. Often we can find ourselves a little bit confused, thinking, I don't quite get the Holy Spirit stuff. I get Jesus. That's quite nice. He died on a cross for me. Great. I don't understand this Holy Spirit. That seems a bit more weird. It's not weird. Okay, what we're going to see this afternoon, there's nothing weird about the Spirit of God. There's something so stunningly, profoundly beautiful that we need this afternoon. And we're going to see two main things that Jesus highlights. This is not everything that could be said about the Spirit of God, okay? That would take a lot more than the time I've got. I just want us to take the words of Jesus and see what he says. Two big things we're going to see. And the first is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the personal presence of God. That's 
That's what we're talking about. These verses are packed. (laughs) I reckon there's at least eight truths about the Holy Spirit in the first few verses. We're going to run really quick, right? Just, I'm not going to number them. I'm just going to tell you some of the things it says. Look at it. Okay? Look at what Jesus says. He's talking to those who love him. They are those who keep his commands. We'll come back to that in a bit. But look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you. Okay, there's, you see it? This Holy Spirit is a gift given by God. The Spirit is not some force to be manipulated or earned. The Spirit is not a special reward for more mature Christians. Jesus asks the Father who gives the Spirit. Later on, we read that Jesus sends the Spirit. So here's the picture, right? You have the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and is a gift to us, given. Look, if I said to you, um, we are used to the idea, right, that the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. Right, we're used to the idea of Jesus being a gift. Okay, let's just construct this, right? We're used to the idea of Jesus being a gift from the Father. The Father gives the Son. Yeah, we we get that. Okay, fine. So the Father gives the Son and Jesus dies on the cross and he forgives all our sin. But do you understand that the Father so loved the world that he didn't just give his Son, the Father so loved the world that he then gave his Spirit? It's, It's his great gift to anyone who believes. Not a second blessing, not a second experience. When you believe in Jesus, God the Father gives you the Spirit. There's no inferior Christians. There's the Spirit-filled Christians and the non-Spirit-filled Christians. There's no such thing as a non-Spirit-filled Christian. All Christians, given the Spirit because he's a gift. Jesus asks the Father and they joyfully give the Spirit. And the Spirit is not just a gift, he's then an advocate. That's a weird word, isn't it? You give you another advocate. The the word advocate um, is is one way of translating it, and there's lots of different ways. It's quite difficult to get at the the meaning of the Greek word. It literally means someone who comes alongside to help you, right? So it's a bit like when a a kid is trying to play, um, I don't know, tennis or something. They can't even pick up the racket because they're so small and they're like, oh, they can't pick it up. And they're waving it around and trying to hit the ball. They haven't got a hope ever of hitting the ball because the ball just flies past 100 miles an hour. And someone comes alongside, wraps their arms around, picks up the racket, and together they smack the ball. You get it? Together they hit it. That's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to give strength and to comfort and to smack the ball. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us, wraps his arms around us to be the strength and the help that we need for the beyond our ability situations that we face. He comes alongside and he's another advocate because he doesn't come to do something different. He comes to continue the work of Jesus. Who is the first paraclete? It's Jesus. Jesus is the first one who comes into this world to strengthen and to come alongside and to help. And now he sends his spirit 
to continue the work. And he's, the, the Spirit comes to help you and be with you forever. There's three things there, right? He comes to help you, he comes to be with you, and it's permanent. Do you see how much theology of the Spirit is right here? It's all here. Extraordinary. He comes to help. That is, he's for you, not against you. The Spirit who dwells in you wants to help you. He is for you. If I come around your house and say, I'll help you paint your house, and I just stand there and smash up the furniture, you go, hang on a second, I thought you were helping. This isn't helping because helping means you're for me. We're working to... You're helping. The Spirit doesn't come into our hearts to mess things up. He comes into our hearts to help us. And he's permanent. He's with us forever. He's the Spirit of truth. He's not going to lead you into things that are lies. He is true. And he will lead you into truth. And verse 17 says, the world cannot accept him. Oh. Look, the world cannot accept him because the Spirit of God is a person. The Spirit of God is not a force. It does, Jesus doesn't say the world cannot accept it. The world cannot accept him. So when we talk of the Spirit, we must talk of the Spirit as a person, not as an it. And it's so easy, isn't it, sometimes to go, and then the Spirit, you know, it comes and it helps me. And if you talk about me like that, I'll be offended. And I'll say to you, I'm not an it. Honestly, if I refer to someone's cat as an it, I get in trouble. <laughs> what does it do? What's its name? It's not an it, it's a she. Sorry. If we get that offended about our pets, can we be offended when we might treat the Spirit of God like he's not a person? He's the personal presence of God. He's a person. And the world doesn't understand because it neither sees him, knows him, but you know him for he lives with you. You say, how does the Spirit live with him? Well, he's been with them for three years because here is Jesus, the Spirit-filled man, and they've been watching and observing and living with Jesus, the Spirit-filled man. So the Spirit has been with them for three years, but here's what's about to change. He's been with you and will be in you. There comes the big change. You see, this spirit is about to come and take up residence within them. He is about to come and live in their hearts. You see, here is what the magnificent beauty of this promise. I will be with you. I will be with you. How? How is God going to be with us? He's going to come and be in us by his spirit. And then something weird happens in verse 18. Look what verse 18 says. We've just been having the Spirit. He, 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 he will help you. He will be with you. He will live in you. He will do this. He will do that. Verse 18, I will not leave you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, hang on, I thought we were talking about him. <laughs> Why has Jesus suddenly gone, I, I, I? 
It's because the Holy Spirit is not a replacement for Jesus. He's not like the supply teacher at school filling in because the main teacher isn't there. Sorry, Mr. Crosby isn't available today. He's had to go on a course. So you're going to have Miss Tudge instead. Sorry, Jesus isn't available anymore. He's had to go back to heaven. But don't worry, you can have the Holy Spirit for a little while. No. Because the Holy Spirit is the very spirit of Jesus. And so Jesus can say, I will come to you. How will Jesus come to us? As the Spirit, in the Spirit, through the Spirit, with the Spirit, by the Spirit. <laughs> Do you see? So I felt like a little glitch. I felt like I glitched <laughs> for a second. But Jesus, he looks, it's just so precious. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. That's how they're feeling, right? You're going, you're abandoning us, you're leaving us. I'm not leaving you, Jesus says. It's going to change, but you're not going to be orphans. You're not going to be alone. You're not going to be abandoned. I will come to you. He says, verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. I'm not physically going to be in this world any longer. I'm not physically going to be seen in the way that I have been. But you will still see me. Because you will have the spirit, my spirit living in you. And by my spirit, you will see me. Jesus says, because I live, this is halfway through verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Jesus, who's going to die on a cross to pay for sin and rise again because he lives, we live because his spirit lives in us. He is with us. We are not abandoned. His life becomes our life. We're all tied up with him. You see the intimacy? And then he pushes it one step further. If that's not mind-blowing enough, he pushes it one step further. Because look what he says in verse 20. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. The depth, honestly, the depth of what Jesus is talking about here. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will show, love them and show myself to them. And so actually what Jesus is saying, it isn't just that the spirit will dwell within you. It's not even just that I will come to you. My father will come. The father will live in your hearts. The father will dwell in you. Let that sink in. Here is the full blown, holy, triune, trinity God, father, son and Holy Spirit who come to dwell with those who love Jesus. <laughs> That's extraordinary. And how does the Father come to dwell in us? It's not just a platitude, it's real, because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. You see, this is the nature of God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, but that is not three separate beings. They are one. Let me teach you a, a word that you will never, ever use and have no use for at all in your life. But there is a word for this, and it will help you just, it might help you to understand it. 
The word is perichoresis. All right, it's, there it is. Perichoresis, genuinely, it's not a word you need to know. But perichoresis is a word that um, theologians use to try and explain this reality about God. That is that there is a mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That they indwell one another. They are separate, and yet they are one. And that mutual indwelling is what's tried to be captured by this word perichoresis. Or here's a quote from um, Augustine, um, which will come up on the screen now, um, who says this. Um, and you can almost get the, the, the limits of human language, where Augustine talks about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Sounds like the Three Musketeers, right? Um, but there it is. So you have, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, then you have the Son and the Father too, because you can't have the Spirit without the other two, because they're one. And you may say, um, so what? This feels very theoretical and abstract. Let me tell you this. This is way beyond what Joshua could ever have dreamed. This is way beyond what Gideon could ever have dreamed. This is what Jesus has revealed to us. The whole of the beautiful triune God is with us. And not just with us, but in us. So let me ask you this question. Do you love Jesus? I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm saying... Do you have a heart that says, yeah, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I, I want to do what you, I, I get it wrong, but I, I do want to love you. If you love Jesus, then the spirit lives in you right now. The triune God dwells in your heart, in your life. How do you know that's real? How do you know the Spirit is really in you? I think it's a question that unsettles lots of Christians. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, surely you've had that thought that goes, yeah, but is that real? How do I know? What's that supposed to feel like? You'd imagine, wouldn't you, if you had the triune God in you, you'd feel something. That would feel like something, right? He's quite big. It feels like something ought to... What? How do you know? It is a question that unsettles lots of us. And because it unsettles us, I think this is what we do. And not all of us, and this may not be you, but I think this is what we can do. We seek after something, some experience, something that will help us to believe it's really true. So I want to find something. I want to experience something. So I go, yes, you see, it's really true. And that is the way that often our knowledge works. Just stick this for a second. This is slightly complicated, but I, I think it really matters for us. Lots of our knowledge works this way. I believe something is true because I feel it to be true. 
right? Intuition, instinct. This is how loads of our decisions are made. Loads of the way that we go through life. I, I, I don't tend to think about why I think something. I just think it. I feel it. This feels right. And so lots of our knowledge is based on how we feel. But let me ask you this. Do you think Gideon, when he was surrounded by a mighty Midianite army, do you think he felt like a mighty warrior? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon went, oh yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) No. Didn't feel that at all. Yet Gideon chose to act in line with what he was told was true. And that is the order of knowledge that we should be pursuing. Not, my experience tells me what's true, but what I know to be true shapes my experience. That is, you build your hope and your experience and your your view of life and who you are based on what God says is true rather than what you feel. Now, some people stop. This is, I know this is slightly, keep, keep with this. I feel like this is a bit complicated, but stick with it, right? So you've got, so we're not saying I feel it, so it must be true. So you've got the people who go, well, I know it's true and I don't feel anything, but that's fine because I know it's true. But now I want to say, but don't stop there. Because there's a whole bunch of Christians who go, I don't feel it. But God says it's true. So there we go, on with life. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says either. Because the Bible says, no, when you know something is true, it will then live out in your experience. And therefore, to have the spirit of God living in you will lead to all sorts of experience. But you don't base your knowledge based on the experience. You base your experience on the truth, right? And so if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if you know that the Spirit of God lives in you, then you should pursue an experience. You should be saying to God, God, I want to know more of that reality. I want to step out in faith. I want to be bold. I want to go and face this this thing that's beyond my ability in your strength and your power. That is to go through life experiencing the daily reality that God is present in your life, talking to him as you go through life. People talk about practicing the presence of God. You know when people start being living in the moment and being mindful about the moment, we should get a Christian version of that, which is living in the presence That's quite not the present, but living in the presence of God daily, saying, God, I I want to know you in this moment. And for some people, then God gives particular gifts and particular experiences. So the gifts like speaking in tongues and miraculous experiences and visions and dreams and those sorts of things are sometimes given by God to those who have the spirit not to confirm, not so that you might know. but in order that you might experience what you already know. Does this make sense? You've got to get it that way around. And therefore, we don't pursue the experience, we pursue the knowledge. Okay. Well, probably raised more questions than uh, has answered, but it's good to be talking about this stuff. The Spirit of God is given. If you're completely confused and lost, 
Hold on to the fact that the triune God lives in your heart. That's a big enough fact to go on for today. Let me just pick up the next bit and we'll do this much more quickly. <laughs> no, I don't even have a watch. It's dangerous. Um, so here is, here is the Holy Spirit. Here's the personal presence of God, right? Got it? Yes. <laughs> here's the second thing. He is the ongoing words of God. He gives the ongoing words of God. He, well, we'll see. He becomes the great teacher. In verse 22, Judas, um, not Judas, I mean, poor bloke. Fancy being called Judas. <laughs> You're going to have to change your name to Judas, not Judas Iscariot. It's going to be like the rest of your life. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Judas. <gasps> Judas Iscariot, not Judas Iscariot. Anyway, there he is. But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, Judas is saying, why don't you do something a bit more public? Why are you keeping it so secret? Jesus says, well, that's this moment now is not the moment when I reveal myself to the world. I reveal myself to you. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and will come to them and make a home with them. There it is again. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. You see, the words of Jesus now become very important. The words of Jesus and how you treat the words of Jesus show whether you are with him or against him. If you love him, you will love his words and you will obey his words. If you ignore his words, then you will be away from him. Verse 25, all this I've spoken while still with you. Right, if Jesus' words are crucial, and the words that Jesus is speaking are crucial, here's the deal. With Jesus leaving, what happens to all his words? You get, you get the problem? He never wrote anything down. How are the disciples ever going to remember everything that Jesus said? If these words are so important, how are they ever going to remember? They've already demonstrated a profound inability to understand. You don't imagine that any of them were thinking to take notes along the way, do you? These priceless words of Jesus. If only they'd realized that they were going to have to sort of be responsible for writing it all down. They'd have gone, sorry, Jesus, can we just go back over that? Can we, I need to get some stuff down. I need to get some notes. These priceless words, these words of life and truth, how can they ever be recovered? Okay, here's the promise. The Holy Spirit's coming. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. There's the promise. The personal presence of God, the personal presence of Jesus, who is going to come and live in the disciples, in Jesus' first followers, will be the one who then reminds them and teaches them so that they might write and remember his words so that we might have them today. There's this massive link in the Bible between the words of God and the spirit of God. It's all over the place. The spirit comes to human beings and enables them to speak the word of God. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came to prophets and enabled them to speak the word of God. And now, with Jesus leaving, the Holy Spirit will come to the apostles and will enable them to speak the word of God and to write it down. Here's what troubled hearts need to know. You need to know where you find truth, words that you can rely on. 
in a world full of fake news and opinions and ideas and thoughts, you need something solid. Well, what about the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Jesus? Is that good enough for you? Are they words that will calm your troubled soul? Uncertainty causes us great distress and fear, but here is the spirit of truth. And that means that the words that the apostles wrote in the New Testament are not just human words, they're spirit-given words. They're words that are words of life, which means that the same spirit, you see, John, who wrote John's gospel, he's dead. He's been dead donkey's years. But the Spirit's not dead. And therefore, the Spirit takes these same words that he inspired John to write, and he's still our teacher today. He's still our Holy Spirit guide. He's still the one who will show us and remind us and will teach us everything that Jesus said as we read what he's written. We must not drive a wedge between the word of God and the spirit of God. Sometimes people do this, right? Oh, you're a, you're a Bible church. You're a spirit church. What a total load of nonsense. To have a church that's not a, to have a church that's a Bible church, but not a spirit church, that's a dead church. To have a church that's a spirit church, but not a Bible church, that's a dead church. We want to be, because the Spirit has come and has filled and has reminded and has given this word, we want to be a church that is full of the word and the Spirit. Building our lives on these foundational, solid words. But not as some historical document, but as the living, Spirit-filled word that comes to us and teaches us. And here again you see the whole triune God. The words that belong to the Father, he gave to the Son. The Son speaks the words. The Spirit reminds the world of those words. And and the whole of the Trinity is again caught up in giving us what we need. So there it is. There's the two big ways that the Spirit, he's the personal presence of God. He's the ongoing, gives the ongoing words of God for us today. And Jesus then says in verses 28 to 31, that he's leaving. He says it again. He says he's going to his father who's greater than him, greater in glory at that moment because Jesus is on earth. He's going to go to his father to share his father's glory. Prince of the world is coming. But Jesus is the one who is obedient to the father. So look, we need to finish. Here's here's what you do with a troubled heart. You need the spirit of God, the personal presence of God who comes to take up residence in you, the ongoing words of God that give you confidence and foundation and solid ground to stand on. And with the personal presence of God and the spirit-filled word of God, you're able to lift up your heads, look into the darkness and step out and say, I trust you. What's troubling your heart this afternoon? We're going to take some time to respond and to worship and to bring some of those things to him. This is real, okay? When we talk about the Spirit of God, this is our God coming to live with us. It doesn't get more precious than that. 
And I really want us just to spend a few moments enjoying that together. And asking him, even this afternoon, asking him that you might know for sure that this is true of you and that you might then be able to live that out and experience that in all its fullness.